Are you experiencing numbness or tingling in your hands and fingers? If so, you're going to want to listen to this episode of the Comcast. massage therapist and sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario and Canada. And welcome to Concast episode 33, a podcast where we discuss injuries, health, wellness and all things related to that in an attempt to better understand the human body. For episode 33, I'm going to talk about a very common condition that many people suffer from and that is carpal tunnel syndrome. So During this episode, I'm going to try and break it down. Hopefully there's value for both the patient as well as the practitioner and give you some insight into how I see this injury from an anatomy standpoint, from a treatment management and diagnostic standpoint. So when we talk about carpal tunnel syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome is really an injury to one of the peripheral nerves in the body, peripheral nerves being nerves that are outside of the neck or outside of the spinal cord, the median nerve in this case. And there are three major mixed nerves that feed the arm, the median nerve, the radial nerve, and the ulnar nerve. And the median nerve is a nerve that arises from an area called the brachial plexus, which is this big group of nerves that exit out of the neck. And it comes off of two parts of the brachial plexus, both the lateral and the medial cord. And the lateral medial cord is made up of nerve roots from the levels C5 all the way through to T1 uh, in your neck. And nerve roots are little strings that form bigger strings, which are ultimately the nerves that end up supplying both sensation and motor function to the arm. Now, the role of the median nerve is it supplies motor innervation so the ability for you to produce power and force and movement to certain muscles in the forearm and the hand and then it also provides sensation to the thumb index and middle finger and the outside half of the ring finger or the lateral half of the ring finger it allows you to discriminate touch it can sometimes lead to sensations of pain and if this nerve is altered due to carpal tunnel syndrome it can elicit different responses Now, it's important before we move forward to understand what mixed nerves are comprised of. So mixed nerves have really three different functions. They've got their motor function, which we just mentioned, creating movement, force, dexterity. And this only really comprises about 5% of all mixed nerves. The other remaining 95% is really divided into two portions. We've got our sensory portion, which we've also touched on, the ability to discriminate between vibration, fine touch, hot and cold. And then we also have another portion known as the autonomic fibers. And autonomic fibers do things regionally to blood flow, so they can affect regional blood flow. They can affect the ability to form goosebumps on the skin, the ability to create flushing on the skin. And they also have fibers that tie directly back into our automatic nervous system, so they can influence things like heart rate and blood pressure. And if those nerves are irritated, peripherally, so in the arms and the legs, they can have 
central influences on them. And I think that's a really important point to note, and we'll probably revisit this throughout the episode. Really, once again, carpal tunnel syndrome is an injury to the median nerve. Now, what exactly is the carpal tunnel? Because we hear carpal tunnel syndrome, or I have carpal tunnel a lot. The carpal tunnel is an anatomical landmark. And what that means is it's an area in the wrist, and it's formed up of nine tendons, four tendons from a muscle known as flexor digitorum superficialis, four tendons from a muscle known as flexor digitorum profundus, and then an additional tendon from a tendon that acts on your thumb, flexor pollicis longus. And all of those tendons surround your median nerve, which we just touched on, in this very tight space known as the carpal tunnel. The roof of the carpal tunnel is capped by a ligament known as the transverse carpal ligament, which essentially runs from the base of your thumb towards the base of your baby finger. And then the floor of the carpal tunnel is made up of four bones in your wrist known as the distal carpal row. And these four bones are the trapezoid, trapezium, capitate, and hamate bone. And so by virtue of having a floor and a ceiling that are quite stiff, if the tendons of these nine muscles get increased in tone, then they can apply compression to the nerve that they surround, the median nerve, and that can create a lack of movement and glide of the median nerve. It can create inflammation due to friction. And when that nerve gets irritated, it affects all of these different fiber types within the nerve. It affects its motor function, it can affect its sensory function, and it can affect its autonomic function. And depending upon how significant and severe the carpal tunnel syndrome is, this can range from general achiness in the forearm to some numbness and tingling in the thumb, index finger, middle finger, or outside of the ring finger, or all of those at the same time. And then as we get into later stages of the injury, it can affect motor function, dexterity, power, movement, and we can start to get what's known as atrophy or muscle wasting. Now, it's important to note that because the majority of mixed nerves, the motor function is a very small percentage, like I said, about 5%, that if you're noticing that you're getting true muscle wasting, it probably means that the nerve has been compressed or injured substantially enough that it's affected that little 5%. And usually we start to see that near the end of carpal tunnel syndrome or any of the variations of carpal tunnel syndrome that we're going to discuss. What you will see prior to that is you'll see a lot of other telltale signs. You might see some just general dullness and achiness. You might experience the symptom of tightness in the hand. You might experience some sensory changes, so you might not be able to feel an area of the thumb pad, or you might get numbness and tingling known as paresthesia. A lot of the time, there are many preceding symptoms to the end stage of muscle wasting or muscle shrinking. And so it's important as clinicians that we're always paying attention to these three fiber types of mixed nerves and trying to get ahead of them so we can adequately treat them and or refer to the appropriate practitioners to get good co-management when dealing with something like this. When we look at carpal tunnel syndrome and from a clinician standpoint, when we're trying to figure out whether a patient has carpal tunnel syndrome, I think it's really important to understand what carpal tunnel syndrome isn't for everybody. Carpal tunnel syndrome is not just generalized wrist and hand pain, which 
many people will use it as a catch-all for that. So if you don't have a diagnosis from somebody that's a medical professional and your hand is sore, chances are a lot of the time it's not carpal tunnel syndrome. There are many other injuries that can go on in the hand and wrist from strains and sprains to general achiness. So it's important that you get a working diagnosis. And why this is important is carpal tunnel syndrome is managed in a very specific way with a specific set of treatment, rehab, and medical care. And if you're not certain that you have it, then the symptoms that you are feeling might be treated in a different way. So it's always important that you get a working correct diagnosis first. Now, typically the most common way that these are diagnosed is through a thorough physical exam, as well as there are diagnostic tests that can be done. There's often ultrasounds that are done to the carpal tunnel to see whether that median nerve is inflamed within it. And then very importantly, there's something known as an EMG. And this is a nerve conduction study that's done. And this measures how well the nerve is functioning across the entire length of the arm. This is a very specific type of test and it can lead to providing quite a bit of information in terms of whether the nerve is injured, where the nerve is injured, and lead the therapist down the path of what are some common structures then that can be addressed for best resolution and outcome. Without a thorough physical exam and without some of the accompanied imaging, it is very difficult often to suggest that that patient truly has a carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, why this is the case is when we talk about peripheral nerve injuries, these are injuries that, again, happen outside of the neck. So the peripheral nerves are essentially big strings that are coursing through the arm or big wires, essentially, and they provide electrical conductivity to the muscles and to areas of the skin to provide sensation, as well as, like I said, they wire back into our central nervous system. Now, at the top of the podcast, I also mentioned that in the spine, there are these little nerve roots, which are smaller strings that form the larger strings of the nerves. And centrally, in the neck, these nerve roots can get irritated as well. They can get irritated at the level of a joint. There might be an osteoarthritic growth that might affect them. There might be a disc injury that may affect them or other central changes that might affect these nerve roots. This is particularly important for carpal tunnel syndrome with respect to the C6 and C7 nerve roots, mainly because C6 provides sensation to the thumb and C7 provides sensation to the index and middle finger. And while this is not always a perfect scenario, as often these sensation patterns overlap, it shouldn't be ignored for anyone that's experiencing thumb, index finger, or middle finger pain, or hand pain in general. As a therapist, we always want to understand whether the injury is coming centrally or peripherally. Now, for this example, the first thing that I want to rule out is, I do want to rule out, is this a true carpal tunnel syndrome, or is this a more centrally driven injury? And so what I will first do is focus in on the neck, and any structures that influence that C6 and C7 nerve root. So I will do a full central nervous system exam, including myotomes, dermatomes, and deep tendon reflexes. I will also do neck provocation testing 
something as simple as a Sperling's test or compressing or distracting the cervical spine to see whether or not I can get changes in the symptoms that they are experiencing in their hand or fingers. If I can get that, along with if there are other declines in the central nervous system, maybe there's a change in a myotome or a deep tendon reflex, as well as maybe there's also accompanying neck pain or a history of car accident, then I'm going to think that this might be more of an issue in the neck and certainly chart that, make my notes and my referrals accordingly versus if I don't pay attention to the neck first or I ignore it entirely and assume that this is just a carpal tunnel syndrome, I can treat the arm, the hand, and the wrist all day and I may not get the resolutions that I'm looking for because that's not the true site of the injury or the ailment that my patients are feeling. So very, very important that understanding what carpal tunnel is not is probably more important than actually getting the true working diagnosis first. Always look to the neck, rule out dermatomes, myotomes, and deep tendon reflexes, as well as some sort of compressive issue within the neck, and then start to move into the peripheral nervous system as a therapist. If I'm now confident that the injury is not at the neck, so there's no accompanying neck pain, all of the things that I've done to examine the central nervous system are completely within normal limits, then I want to examine the peripheral nervous system, in particular the nerves that supply where the patient is feeling their symptoms. So if the patient's feeling thumb pain, and I know the median nerve is providing sensation to the thumb, I'm using the map of pain to try and figure out what nerve is injured. And I think that's something that I've done that I found to be really, really helpful. So for all you therapists out there, use the dermatomal map as a guide to start your assessment. And while dermatomes are overlapping and not always perfect, it's somewhere to start. So if the person is experiencing pain in the index finger, I always think median nerve and C7. Those are the two areas that I need to rule out. So I need to go to the neck. I need to rule out a C7 nerve root injury. I need to test all the accompanied dermatomes, myotomes, and deep tendon reflexes, usually the one above and the one below. So I'll do C6, C7, C8. I'll do some compression and distraction to the neck. And usually my orthopedic tests aren't overly specific because the specificity and sensitivity of orthopedic testing is so variable across many studies. I just want to see whether compressing the neck creates some irritation or recreation of symptoms or just distracting the neck alleviate or augment the symptoms as well. And then move into this peripheral exam. Now, when I look at the median nerve in particularly, I'm using the upper limb tension test. And the upper limb tension test is really designed to look at the health, the viability, and the mobility of the nerve, as well as the nerve roots that feed the nerve through the entire limb. And so what this is doing is it's essentially seeing whether the nerves can floss through the tissue or whether they get caught or compressed on a structure and create symptoms. And symptoms may be numbness and tingling. It may be pain. Often it's the feeling of tightness without pain, but it can also aggravate autonomic changes. It could create different flushing patterns within the skin. 
It could create excessive goosebumps in an area. It could create a sweating reflex, or it could even create central changes. It could create an increase in heart rate and blood pressure and mimic symptoms of anxiety by doing an upper limb tension test, which is seemingly somewhat bizarre in a way, but because those peripheral nerves have autonomic fibers to them and are hardwired into the central nervous system, it is not that uncommon to see these changes. So as you're doing your upper limb tension test for the median nerve, you want to be slow, you want to be progressive and communicating with the patient, and often you're looking for this symptom of tightness. When the patient is experiencing tightness, you want to see whether or not you can then alleviate that by virtue of changing the neck position. Because many people will say, oh, I just feel a stretch. But if you can change the sensation of a stretch in the forearm by moving the neck, then you can communicate that to the patient and say, look, I haven't changed the length of this tissue. All I've done is change the position of your neck and you're experiencing this symptom or you've experienced a decrease in that symptom. I've slackened the, the nerve and that's alleviated some of the symptoms. What this will allow you to do is get buy-in from your patient, compliance to treatment and rehab, as well as it gives you information about what's going on and allows you to better formulate your treatment plan. The other really helpful tool that I've used is Tonell's sign. Tonell's sign is just the act of tapping on areas where you know that the nerves are most superficial in the body in an attempt to see whether or not they're irritated. And when you tap there, you'll often get recreation of symptoms. This can be in the form of kind of shooting-like pain. Uh, it can be in the form of recreating some of their symptoms, as well as if I get a positive Tonell sign at that area, I will often immediately go and just do some gentle skin rolling in that area to see whether I can, again, augment the symptoms, either make them better or worse through manipulating the skin over the area where the Tonell sign is positive. Now, often as therapists, we're trained to do tunnels for carpal tunnel syndrome at the carpal tunnel, which is just essentially half the distance between the base of the thumb and the baby finger, which I think is important. But there are also many other areas in the body where the median nerve can get entrapped and mimic carpal tunnel syndrome. These include, if we're moving from the carpal tunnel more proximally, in between the flexor digitorum superficialis and the pronator teres, in between both heads of the pronator teres muscle, and then in between the ligament of Struthers, which is a ligament just between the medial supracondylar ridge of the humerus and the medial epicondyle. It's not always anatomically present in people, but sometimes uh, it will run over the median nerve as it courses down the medial aspect of the arm when present. We could also do tunnels at the scalenes to see whether or not one of the cords of the brachial plexus is irritated and creating a tugging on the nerve and the subsequent symptoms that the patient is feeling. And then last but not least is the median nerve can also get caught in the thenar web or the muscles in the thumb distal to the carpal tunnel but still create symptoms within it. So like I said, after I do the upper limb tension test and the, the patient is saying that they're experiencing tightness, I'll usually go to where that tightness is and I will do tunnels either side of the tightness. So if they're experiencing tightness in the mid forearm, I'll do tunnels over the pronator teres and then some skin rolling. And I'll do tunnels over the carpal tunnel itself and do some skin rolling. And that's where I'll start my treatment. 
Where I've been able to elicit the majority of the symptoms is where I suspect that the primary issue is. And that's not to say that that is always a slam dunk, but that's usually in my experience where I'll go first. So if I do an upper limb tension test for the median nerve, they're experiencing numbness and tingling in the thumb, and they're getting some forearm tightness at that time. I'll then go to the pronator teres, do my tenels, go to the carpal tunnel, do my tenels. Let's say the pronator teres is creating more symptoms. I'll do some skin rolling there, see if I can augment the function. That will then be the first and primary structure that I treat. I'll treat in and around the pronator teres and the associated tissue of the anterior forearm. And then I'll recheck my work with the upper limb tension test, see whether I've made any immediate changes to symptoms. And all I'm doing there is to try and see whether or not I'm along the right track. I can then provide and formulate a more accurate treatment plan or a more specific treatment plan, I guess, and work along that premise uh, until something happens. Either the patient's getting progressively better or they're not changing at all. And then I need to recheck my work and maybe start a new line of thinking. Let's say we have a clear-cut carpal tunnel syndrome that we're dealing with. So patient arrives, they come from a family doctor, they've got an accompanied EMG, and they've got an ultrasound with inflammation in the carpal tunnel. What are some treatment methods that we can use as therapists, and what are treatment methods that the patient may get in the event that complementary therapies don't work? So when I look at carpal tunnel syndrome, regardless of if the patient has a clear-cut diagnosis, I'm going to want to treat along the length of that median nerve. All of the previous areas that I discussed, which are most common entrapment sites, as well as the neck and the scalenes to try and allow for good mobility along what's known as the long track or the maximal track that that median nerve could move proximal and distal. It's important to note that nerves, all of the peripheral nerves do move. They move anywhere from two to three centimeters at their maximal distance. And if you want further information on this, Michael Shacklock's a great resource for this. He's written a book. He's got a number of courses, so be certain to check out some of his work. But what I really want to do if the nerve's in the periphery is I want to maximize its mobility around the bones, around the tissues that it courses through in hopes that I can restore adequate mobility and ultimately adequate nutrition because what's happening to nerves is Areas of nerves don't always get direct blood supply and they utilize imbibition or pressure change and influx of new blood flow into the area to help provide new nutrients to the nerve as well as get rid of waste products from metabolism. And sometimes due to compression or due to restrictions in that area from the soft tissue, the blood flow is altered in that area, and ultimately that's what elicits our symptoms and that low-grade inflammatory response around the nerve, as well as when nerves get caught mechanically, they can often increase their action potentials back to the brain. This is known as ectopic axonal sensitivity, and so when they're sending signals back to the brain, that doesn't always equate to pain, but sometimes the brain gets fed up and will give us a pain signal as a result of that. So my first goal is to always try and free up all of the tissue that that nerve courses through. So if we look at the median nerve, the scalene or the neck muscles, I want to work on that anterior forearm just above the elbow to free up any of the tissue around the ligament and struthers. 
I want to pay particular attention in the forearm to the pronator teres and the flexor digitorum superficialis muscle. I then want to work through the muscles that envelop the carpal tunnel. So that would include the flexor digitorum profundus additionally, as well as the flexor pollicis longus additionally. And then lastly, ending up in the thenar eminence and the thenar muscles to try and free up the distal aspect of the median nerve. Secondly, following treatment of tissue, I want to make sure all of the joints that that nerve would cross are moving adequately. So the shoulder, the elbow, and the wrist, I might be doing some joint mobilizations to improve range of motion if those structures aren't moving well. And then I want to definitely have neural mobilizations as a part of the treatment. And neural mobilizations are not stretching exercises. They're moving the nerves, the joints in specific directions in an attempt to create fluidity and flossing of the nerve through the tissue. And they do so in a progressive manner where you can build up tension in the nerve over time. And again, the majority of this work is done through the research of Shacklock, as well as the systems that he's looked at and developed over many years. Ultimately, these treatment methods are designed to break the injury cycle, and education needs to be a really big component of carpal tunnel syndrome, like all injuries that we deal with, in that anything that's aggravating their symptoms, we want to try and modify them or remove them during the activities of daily living, especially in the acute process. And we want to have a discussion around things that they're doing. So if they are an electrician and they're doing a lot of work with their hands and they've been doing it for a really long time, are there ways that we can help modify their daily demands of their job to help make this condition better? Other interventions that are used outside of treatment include things like bracing, wearing a carpal tunnel brace at night, just touching on carpal tunnel bracing in general, the thing that I see a lot is many people are wearing carpal tunnel braces that actually don't have carpal tunnel. And so what that can do is over time, that can actually give you carpal tunnel syndrome. And in my anecdotal experience from patients that have carpal tunnel syndrome, night bracing isn't always the best thing. And the way that I imagine this is if you're holding a nerve at length for a sustained period of time that's already irritated, you're affecting its local blood flow and you're preventing in a way good nutrients in the exchange of waste products from getting into that area because you're not creating that much pressure change because of the sustained bracing. Now, following surgery, sometimes you are asked to be in a carpal tunnel brace. I think this is a little bit different, but generally speaking, I just haven't seen great results with bracing for carpal tunnel syndrome, but I'd love to know if you have a method of bracing that's working for you. Feel free to to stick that in the comments below. I'm always open to different treatment strategies that you're using. Ultimately, if none of these therapeutic interventions help, so neural mobilization, joint mobilization, soft tissue work, as well as any other additional rehab that you're using, one of the primary medical interventions is surgery. And what they will do is they'll make a vertical incision over the transverse carpal ligament, which is that rigid roof, and the thought process there is to allow for a reduction in pressure within the carpal tunnel. And this isn't really addressing the primary issue, but it is a temporary pressure release essentially in hopes that that will break the injury cycle and allow the inflammation to calm down in the nerve and 
ultimately symptoms to improve and, and gain function. Now, carpal tunnel surgery over the course of one to two years has variable outcomes in the research. Some people do very, very well with it. Other people do not. So it should always be a last resort for this injury. These injuries are difficult to manage. They're frustrating to manage. Often when you start to do complementary therapy on them, especially neural mobilizations, they will often get worse before they get better, which is an important discussion point with any patient. And it really does take time and dedication from a patient standpoint. So if this is something that you're suffering from as an individual, understand that this could very well take three to six months before it's completely alleviated. And if you're at the stage where you're starting to get muscle wasting, it could take even longer. And some of those things can be permanent changes depending upon the degree at which the nerve has been damaged. What's really, really important is if you're getting numbness and tingling anywhere in the body, not just in the hand or the fingers, this is a symptom that you do want to get looked at. And it's often ignored in hopes that it will go away. But it's important because this is typically an earlier sign of a neurological injury. And not always, it can also sometimes be early evidence of a disease process in the body. But with respect to nerve injuries, if you're getting alterations in sensation, there's still plenty of things that can be done and you can get full resolution of the the injury. Whereas if this is ignored over and over and over and then you start to see huge alterations in function or muscle wasting, it can sometimes be too far gone or the route back is so long that it's more frustrating for you. So anytime that you have pain, alteration and symptoms in the body, the earlier that you can get it looked at by a medical professional, the better. I always say it's so much better to treat an injury on day one than three months in because time is so complicated in everything. And the more time that goes on, the more layers and complexity we have in injury, lifestyle, job, everything in our lives. So if there is one important takeaway and you're experiencing not just carpal tunnel symptoms or symptoms in your hand, any symptom that you're experiencing beyond sort of a three-day period, you're going to want to get that examined by somebody. So we've covered off a lot of topics there, so let's just try and summarize them really briefly. You always want to rule out, is this maybe something in the neck that's mimicking carpal tunnel? That's going to better help guide your treatment. If you've got a definitive diagnosis you're going to want to focus on those nerve entrapment sites, joint mobilizations and neural mobilizations, as well as any other rehab that you have, and patient education. Bracing and surgery work for some people. It does not work for everybody. And if you're a patient experiencing any alterations in sensation for any reason that last more than three days, you always want to get them examined by a medical professional. So what I'd love to know from you, if you're a patient, did you end up having carpal tunnel surgery and was it of benefit to you? If you're a therapist, what are you doing in your clinical practice to help manage these cases? I'd love to know in the comments below. As always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be valuable. We just shot our first bonus episode, a video interview with Robert Libby. That is available on my Facebook page only 
facebook.com slash Connor, C-O-N-O-R-P-A-U-L, Paul Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S. So certainly check that out if you want to see my interview with Robert where we talk about manual therapy. We talk about his book. Really, really great interview. It's about 90 minutes long. Just posted that this week. If you're somebody that has maybe interest in being on the podcast at some point for any of the other bonus episodes, so you've got something to say, you want to chat about manual therapy, you want to be interviewed, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always looking for future guests. Have yourselves a great weekend, folks, and we'll see you in the next one.